0: Thanks for continuing to stand. My name is Tony, and uh, we, get, we have the joy to hear the Word of God, in which I'm reading from Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Tony, for reading that for us. Well, good morning. good morning. and Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you this morning. So if you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Well, I don't know if you heard, but there was a Packer game last night. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I'm in this weird stage of life, I think all of us are probably in to some extent or another, where whenever I mention sports or movies or TV shows, uh, I'm reminded now of how much things have changed, especially over the last couple of decades. It used to be that people would watch particularly uh, games right when they were live. And if you missed it, you missed it, and maybe you'd catch the, the reruns or the highlights uh, on Sports Center later or something like that. Maybe there, on, on occasion there'd be somebody who was running their VCR, but typically, weren't pe- uh, people weren't typically in the pattern of watching games on delay, in the, at least in the way that they are now. But with the proliferation of DVR technology and TiVos and cable boxes and all of those different things, and now even on-demand streaming packages, you never know what someone's personal policy is regarding games. Do you get to say something if the game is in progress? Do you got to kind of mediate it first and say, I don't know if you're live or caught up, but I wanted to talk to you about something that I've seen. My general policy is just a total media blackout. I don't want to know what's happening. Don't tell me what's happening. If we're in the first quarter, presume I don't know, and please don't tell me. And don't do the thing where I say, hey, I haven't seen the game yet, so don't let me know what's going on. and you're going to, and then somebody says, well, you're going to be really pleased with what you see. It drives me batty. It just drives me nuts. You never know what someone's policy is. But, but for some of you, you think the only way to watch a game is if you're watching it live. Others of you are more like me. You're, you're good coming in 30 to 45 minutes late because then you get to skip the commercials. And by the time the game is closing up, you're caught up to live and all those kinds of things. But the downside of my methodology is this. I live in fear of spoilers. I still want to be surprised by the outcome, even though I haven't been watching the game actively. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, that whole mindset is still there for me. I remember a few years back, I had had a meeting that was going on during a Packer game, and by the time that I got out of this meeting, the game was nearly done, or it may have even been finished, but I had to stop by the grocery store on the way home to pick up some dinner, and so I swung into the store, I, I walked in, I began walking down the aisles, I heard two women in the aisle next to me talking about the Packer game, so I covered my ears and scurried away trying to avoid the score. I grabbed my stuff, I went up to the counter, I happened to find a self-checkout lane, which is God's gift to humanity as far as I'm concerned, because now I don't have to interact with the clerk who inevitably is going to say something about the game and try to to ruin all of my hard work, and I managed to navigate all of that, and as I'm leaving the store, I'm celebrating my successful navigation of spoilers, and this well-intentioned clerk walking into the, walking into the store at that moment says, I can't believe the Packers were able to pull off that win. <laughs> it was all I could do not to throw down my hot ham and rolls and protest, and the question you may be asking is, well, what does that actually matter? Well, I think it matters because when you know how something ends, it changes the way you engage with it. And the passage that Tony just read for us today is the surprise win to this book. If you just sit and read... For the first 11 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, and hopefully you have as we've gone through this series. Hopefully you've taken the time to read through the book, even the portions that we haven't preached on. But if you've just sat and read those first 11 chapters, what you realize is that it's a pretty miserable book. It's dour, it's depressing, it's seemingly hopeless. Solomon says for 11 chapters, life is short and meaningless, so eat and drink and be merry. But as Dave referenced last week, Solomon is a tongue-in-cheek fatalist. He gives us that instruction to shock us into reality, to reveal the utter hopelessness of life spent in pursuit of cheap pleasures at the expense of an invaluable God. And that is a trade that far too often we make in this life. But here in chapter 12, everything clicks together. The minor chord of the book of Ecclesiastes finally finds its resolution. And notice how Solomon ends this book. He writes with this rhetorical flourish. The voice flips to the third person, and he says in verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher, he's speaking there of himself, Solomon, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care he's speaking there to the writing of the book of Ecclesiastes himself. These verses are the magnets that pull this whole unusual book into alignment with the rest of Scripture. Solomon has devoted his life... After chasing fantasy and pleasure and momentary satisfaction for years, he now devotes the rest of his life to proclaiming truth, to teaching the people, and to carefully arranging these proverbs for us to read. And every notion in this book is carefully, intentionally, painstakingly ordered to communicate one big truth. But before we get to what that truth is, notice where that truth comes from. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. In other words, what Solomon is saying here is this book is not just a random collection of pithy sayings and clever turns of phrase. This book is not like the musings of Confucius. It's not like the meanderings of the Buddha. It's not like the caterwaulings of Bob Dylan. The words of Ecclesiastes fit together to communicate because they were given by one shepherd. They were provided by by God himself. It is God who chose to use Solomon's story and his personality to cut through the noise of our lives 3,000 years later and get to the heart of the matter. It was God who inspired Solomon to write this honest, self-reflective, seemingly cynical, sarcastically styled book. And consider for just a moment the implications of what that might mean for you. That God chose Solomon with his story and his personality. It's a theme that we've explored before and we'll spend time considering as we move forward. But do you understand that God didn't choose someone who had the perfect story and the exemplary family and the proper marriage and the model career to communicate this message? He didn't choose somebody who started life having had it all figured out and therefore could speak to the success and the satisfaction that it provided. No, he came to Solomon and he said, you, with all the wives and with all the girlfriends and the playboy lifestyle and the hangovers and the bad parenting, I want you to communicate this deep, lasting, eternal truth. And in the very same way, brothers and sisters, your life, and more significantly, what God is able to do with your life, is not limited by what you've done. That whatever regrets you harbor, or whatever struggles you have, or whatever shortcomings you perceive, or failures you've endured, do not limit your potential in the eyes of God. As we've stated ad nauseum, God only uses broken people, in the words of one author, because broken people are all that there are. And so your life, your story, your personality was given to you to be used by God for His glory and the joy of all people. And as we think about Solomon's life, in reality, who better to communicate the folly of these things than the person who had indulged in them as a scientific experiment, who had dived headlong into a life pursuing pleasure and in which he found none of it. And he describes the words that he writes in this book this way. He says these words are intended to be like goads. That's an old-timey way of saying a cattle prod something used to jam into the ribs and drive you forward to prod you along, to stick you in an uncomfortable way, to viscerally move you to consider your life and its purpose. And not only are these words of Solomon a prod in your life, they're also like nails, he says. They're intended to pierce right down to the center of your being, to the core of your soul, to your will, to your mind, to your emotions. But Solomon's intention in writing all of these things is not to be self-indulgent, it's not to be self-pitying, or even written as a confession. In verse 9, Solomon actually gives us his intention. And here's what he says. He says, I wrote this to be a pastoral encouragement to the people who are entrusted to me by God. He writes these things to say, as any loving parent would, don't make the mistakes I've made. Learn from my foolishness. And there's very practical wisdom in that mindset for us because I can't tell you the number of times that I've sat with parents who've said things like, yes, my child is living in this destructive way, they're participating in that behavior, they're indulging in this unhealthy pattern, but I did the same thing when I was his or her age, and so I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to be a hypocrite. And the rejoinder of Solomon, and I think the rejoinder of Scripture is, it is not hypocrisy to want to keep your child or those whom you love from something you know to be harmful for them, nor is it loving to allow your child or someone you love to continue in something destructive for the sake of maintaining your own sense of consistency, because the only ideal we communicate when we do that is, is consistent foolishness. So Proverbs chapter 12 verse 15 is going to say it this way. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes but a wise man listens to advice. And thankfully the good shepherd loves us enough and Solomon is humble enough to pour out what he does in these pages in an attempt to save us from the same foolish pursuits. And notice how Solomon describes his own writing in verse 10. He says the preacher sought to find words of delight And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. And he's saying these two ideas go hand in hand. These collected sayings, these proverbs that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes, these wise sayings were intended to function like the twin tools of a shepherd. The words of truth that functioned like a rod to correct and to discipline. And words of delight, which are like a staff and are meant to draw the sheep near. And so he begins with a warning, verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. If Solomon was writing this same verse today, he might say it this way, don't put your final hope in ideologies or education or philosophies or self-help or the purported expertise of others. Watch out for those who claim to have extra special wisdom or insight that comes through a means other than the Bible. You have been given the inspired word of God and in it you'll find wisdom and life and promise. Understand what he's not saying here. He's not suggesting that we shouldn't read other materials. We ought to be informed, knowledgeable. We ought to gain wisdom from many sources. To paraphrase the late, great uh, Anglican preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Christian ought to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. In other words, a Christian who is unable to engage with and either find value in or stand against the notions of the age is severely limiting his usefulness to those around him. But what Solomon is saying is that the word of God must be our sole standard of truth. That for whatever wisdom we find in the received wisdom of those who've gone before us or well-written books or sage advisors, however beneficial they may be, they all must come in second to our understanding of God's Word. The Bible itself must be the lens through which we view the world around us. And how often do we look for wisdom and insight in sages and teachers and books when we have the words of God at our fingertips, but don't break the spine? It's good and right to read and study, but it has its limitations and now, With all of that as the preamble, Solomon is going to give us the conclusion to this book. The conclusion that 11 chapters and some odd verses have led up to. This is the purpose of all of his writing. If you wanted the key that unlocks this book, here it is. If you want to read this and then go back and read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll read it in a whole different way. And here's what he says. The end of the matter, verse 13. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Now we ought to pay attention to this because this is Solomon in his own words summing up the purpose of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And here's what he says. The whole thing comes down to this. Fear God and obey him. Fear God and obey him. Now, in our modern ear, we hear that instruction to fear God, and we rightly ask, what in the world does he mean? What is the idea, even, of fearing God? Because when I hear that, my mind jumps back to a very religious notion of an angry Old Testament God sending plagues and judging people and throwing down lightning on the unexpected, and all of those sorts of silly religious notions that we have about who God might actually be taken out of their context, I should say. And we ignore what Scripture actually means when it gives instruction to fear Him. So what does it actually mean to fear God? I thought we were supposed to love Him because He first loved us, so why am I now supposed to fear Him? Well, we get a clue in Psalm 130. Psalm 130, verse 3, the psalmist writes this, and I want you to notice the structure of these sentences. Here's what he says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand... But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now what's he saying? The psalmist says, God, if, if you wanted to, You could look at my life, you could look at the intricacies of my mindset, you could look at my memories and my thoughts, you could look at the desires of my heart, you could look at the way that I'm wired, you could look at every little piece of who I am and what I've done and what I've thought and what I've said and whatever I will do, and you could write it down in a book, moment by moment, that God reads your heart, that He knows your mind, that He sees your actions, that nothing is hidden from Him. That he sees you with nothing veiling his eyes. That there is no amount of hiding you can do to keep who you are at root from the eyes of God. And what the psalmist says is if you were to write those things down, you could fill out pages upon pages. You could keep a ledger full of all my sins and all my failures and all my transgressions. And if you did that, God, I would be so overwhelmed, so guilty, so ashamed of who I am, so weighed down in my soul that I would be unable to stand Think for just a moment, if we could go back on the last month of your life, just the last month, and if somehow we were able to tap into your brain and see what you thought at every particular moment and how you responded and what you said and the intentions of your heart and what you did when no one else was around and no one else was watching, and imagine for just a moment that that was thrown up on a screen behind me how horrifying and embarrassing that might be for us. And that is just a fraction of what the psalmist is describing in Psalm 130. It is a fearful thing as a sinful, limited being to find yourself in the presence of a holy and all-knowing God. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but... With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, wait a minute. What he just described a moment ago was fearful. That was the most terrifying thing we can imagine, the most humiliating situation that we could possibly come up with. So why now does he say, since there's forgiveness in you, there is fear? The truth of the matter is there is two different types of fear that are described when we talk about the fear of God. There's the kind of fear that repels us and pushes us away and makes us want to hide and crawl underneath a rock. But there is another kind of fear that is, in the words of one author, not repulsive. It doesn't drive us away. It draws us in. So how do you describe those two different kinds of fear? And here's Here's how I was thinking about it. I remember at different points in life being in storms that were so overwhelming as maybe I was driving home, so dark where if the lights in the car had not been functioning, you could not see ahead of you. And in addition to the darkness, rain that was coming down in sheets, you know, the kind of rain that comes down so hard that even though you have your wipers on, it barely makes a dent in what it is you're able to see. And lightning crashing all around you. And even as an adult, there's that feeling of, how small you are in that moment, how overwhelming and how strong these forces are, how, how powerful they are, that, that any of these forces, the, the wind or the lightning would have the ability to blow your car off the road or strike you where you are in that moment. But at the very time that You're thinking that when you arrive home and you walk into your house and the comfort and the warmth of your own home and you walk over to a window and look out at that very same storm, it has an amazing ability to look beautiful to us. All the same power and all the same strength. But now you get to see the beautiful, intricate patterns of electricity falling to the earth. In the winter, you get to see the snow globe effect of what it looks like when inches of snow fall over the course of just a few hours. Forces that could be devastating or life-threatening can also strike our eyes as beautiful. So C.S. Lewis paints a picture like this for us in the, in the Narnia series, specifically in the book The Silver Chair, there's a scene in which the protagonist, protagonist whose name is Jill, finds herself desperately thirsty. She's on the verge of collapse, she's so thirsty, and she finally finds herself in this place where she comes across a beautiful crystal clear stream that belongs to Aslan, the great lion. Aslan is this Christ figure in the story, but he takes the form of this powerful, intimidating, terrifying, strong lion. And as Jill is about to run headlong for the water, she hears the deep voice of this massive, dangerous lion saying, if you're thirsty, you may drink. But the words of the invitation frighten Jill because his voice is so intimidating and he comes across as so large. And again, the voice calls out to her, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And this time, She has a fear, but it's a slightly different fear because she hears the deep, wild, strong voice of Aslan. It didn't make her any less frightened than she'd been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. And in the words of this conversation, the lion says, are you not thirsty? Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Well, then I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. When we see God for who he is, so big and so powerful, the creator and the sustainer of the world, the God who holds your breath in his hands, who knows your first moment from your last, the God from whom you cannot hide anything, the God who controls everything in your life. When you see that God for who he is, there is in a very real sense a fear that grips the heart. But according to one theologian, what then Does the fear of God mean? What it has to mean is that the fear of God is awe and wonder and amazement. Listen to this. In existential grasping of who He is, the greatness of who He is. So is He intimidating and strong and powerful? Yes. Is He great, even frightening in His strength? And in his magnitude, yes. Is he unpredictable in human terms? Yes, but also infinite in love and goodness. And if you want to see a picture of this from Scripture itself, we find it recorded for us in the crucifixion scene in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew records for us that as Jesus hung on the cross, there was a period of time where darkness, an unusual, unexpected darkness, came over the land. And in your mind's eye, you can begin to imagine that as this unnatural darkness began to creep over the land, there was an eerie quiet that fell over the crowd that, there, that was there to witness Jesus' crucifixion. The same crowd that had just been mocking and jeering and laughing in this moment falls quiet. And in this moment, Jesus, naked and ashamed and beaten, cries out on the cross, to Tetelestai which means it is finished. And as he cries out that word and as his head slumps in death, at that very moment, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The ground begins to shake. Rocks begin to split themselves open, according to Matthew 27, and the tombs of those who were dead, the tombs of dead saints, begin to open up as people are miraculously brought back to life to proclaim that this is in fact the Son of God. And there's one man standing there, a centurion, who'd been on the detail of watching and crucifying Jesus. And according to Matthew 27, it says this, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely... He was the Son of God. That is the fear of the Lord. To be so overwhelmed at the display of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus and so frightened that creation itself begins to resonate with the sorrow of His death and yet so amazed at the sacrificial love of Jesus to endure it on your behalf that your only response is to say, surely He's the Son of God. The fear of the Lord is an existential grasping of who God is. And this, says Solomon, is the whole duty of men. And in fact, that word that's translated duty in our Bibles was actually added by translators. Solomon is in essence saying this. To be wholly human. To be fully human, to be the full realization of what you were created and intended to be, is to existentially grasp who God is. In other words, this is what it's all about. Do you want to know what life is all about? Do you want to know what the purpose of life is? Do you want to know why you're here and why your life matters? Do you want to know why God gives us good gifts to enjoy in this life and why there is drudgery in this life? Why there's pain and suffering as well as untold joy and promise in this life? Do you know why all of it is here to give testament to the fact that there is in fact a one true God who created you who calls you, who loves you, who pursues you for himself. And to live your life for any other motivation other than to live in light of who God is, is to miss the purpose of your existence. If you remember back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we talked about that idea that God had planted eternity on our hearts that he placed signposts both within us and around us to direct us to the idea that there is more to life than just this life. And what Solomon gives us here in chapter 12 is the object to which all of those signs point. If you're within the sound of my voice, Whether or not you would claim to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you understand that you were created for communion with the Father? That the great lion of Judah, the creator and sustainer of the world, the lover of your soul, desires a relationship with you. that you were created for communion with him, not to be driven away by his power and might, but to be drawn into it. As one pastor quipped, the only person who is not not afraid to approach the most powerful king with the most minor of needs is his young child who needs a drink of water in the middle of the night. And if that's true of human relationships, how much more true is it of the creator and sustainer of the universe? Well, what is it that actually gives us the confidence to approach God that way? What drove Jill to go to the water to drink of that, which would mean that she'd never be thirsty again? Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. And the truth of the matter is, the relationship that you do or do not have with the God that we've described this morning will determine your reaction to those words. Because if you're here and you do not know Christ, and you do not have a relationship with Him, and you hear the proclamation of Jesus Christ on the cross and you read the words about Him in Scripture, and your heart is not affected, turned towards God, given new desires, brought into relationship with Him, then those words ought to rightly terrify. But there is a day of judgment coming where every deed, good and bad, are judged by God Himself. But the amazing gift is that God did not leave us alone to try to tip the scales in our favor. Because for those who know Jesus, we can approach this Creator God with confidence and in fact, with joy. That judgment day for the Christian is not the day of reckoning that it will be for those who do not know Christ. Because for the Christian, your day of reckoning happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ bore your sins on his own body, when he suffered the brutal death that you deserved, and when through his resurrection provided a new life for you. Jesus did all of that so that the fear of judgment could be removed and replaced with the other kind of fear. A fear that recognizes the power and the might and the wonder of God but delights in his forgiveness. And when you come into the presence of that sort of majesty and power and might, you'll also come along with it into that sort of tenderness and approachableness and gentleness. And when you do that, there is nothing left but to enjoy him and obey Him. Friend, this world offers all kinds of water, but it's tainted and it's unsatisfying and it leaves you thirstier than before. There is only one stream that satisfies and it belongs to God Himself. So drink deeply, with the invitation of God's goodness and love and affection for you. Trusting that a God who created you and knows you also loves and pursues you. Would today be the day where you see him for the good and powerful God that he is. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this book and I thank you for The surprise ending. God, if we didn't know the ending of this book going in, we would be surprised, at least on some sense or another, to come to chapter 12. Because all of the vanity and all of the meaningless and all of the emptiness and all of the vapid depictions that Solomon gives us are finally in this moment clicked into place when we realize that we were built for something and designed for something and called to something infinitely greater. God, I pray that we as your people would fear you, not in the sense where we cower and run, but in the sense where we stand with amazement at the fact that you provide forgiveness, that you call us into your presence, that you make us sons and daughters, that you invite us to the stream, to drink deeply there. And God, for those who may be here today who don't know you, would today be the day where they, be, where they stop seeing you as the threat and begin to see you as the promise? with the realization, God, that they are built for eternity, create in them a desire to know the God who exists in eternity God, do in our hearts what only you can do. Encourage us and remind us and call us today. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.